Could you please open your Bible to Genesis chapter 7? Last week we considered uh, the man Noah and how he is an example of faith. And this morning we're going to focus uh, on the judgment of the flood. Okay, so let's let's pray. Uh, Father, we do thank you uh, for your word. Father, thank you that you've spoken and uh, you've revealed uh, yourself in your word. Lord, we know you have uh, ordained uh, the foolishness of preaching uh, as the means of communicating uh, your truth. And uh, I do pray that uh, you would help me uh, as the preacher. And um, I do ask that the Holy Spirit uh, would work uh, in our lives this day, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever uh, been impacted by a flood? Now, I remember in 1996 uh, in Grafton, uh, I was in kindergarten, uh, worst day of my life starting school, but you know, in 96 it was raining cats and dogs and the river was quickly rising and they endeavoured to build an emergency levee wall and unfortunately uh, it failed and I went to bed uh, one night, everything was normal. But when I woke up in the morning, much to my amazement, our home was now a houseboat. There was flood water everywhere, under our house, around our house. The the street was like a river. Um, And Grafton had just got a McDonald's. Okay, very exciting for a five-year-old boy. And it was underwater. Okay, so that was my first flood experience. You know, the thing with floods, especially uh, big floods, is they're incredibly destructive. They possess immense power and they're incredibly dirty. Uh, I remember vividly a Lismore CBD after a flood. I remember walking around the streets, it looked like a war zone. Glass shop fronts smashed in, mud everywhere, it stinks. Okay, piles of destroyed furniture, debris everywhere. And, and it was devastating to see what it had done to my local town. But the thing is, that's only a local flood, one that impacts just a few small towns. Imagine a universal flood where nothing is left uncovered, cataclysmic devastation that's universal in scope. That's what we have recorded here in Genesis chapter 7, that the heavens opened up like never before, that the ground was torn apart like a piece of fabric and the waters sprung up from the deep. It seems likely that tsunamis would have occurred with the disturbance of the earth. The world that was previously very good was deconstructed piece by piece. In fact, throughout our text, it seems that Moses, who was the author, wants us to think back to the creation account. We should think of the flood as a decreation that led to a recreation. And there are language links throughout the narrative. There's a general correspondence between the progression of creation six days and chapter eight's description of the new creation. We won't walk through that this morning, but I've included that on your outline. 
So the flood is a decreation followed by a recreation. There are definite thematic links. And it's important for us to understand that this decreation, that this universal flood, it's divine judgment. Okay, don't lose sight of that. Okay, the Lord in fierce and righteous wrath tears the world apart like a lion does its prey. That there's death and destruction on a universal scale. So this is something that God has done before. And it's something that he will do again. Hey, God has judged the world once, so don't think he won't do it again. And this is a connection that the New Testament makes explicitly. But Jesus in his Olivet Discourse. Okay, he teaches about things to come. He says this in Matthew 24, verses 38 and 39. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the son of man be. Okay, so, so Jesus links the flood and the second coming, which will be a time of judgment. The Apostle Peter makes this same connection. Okay, in his second epistle, there were scoffers who were mocking the claim that Jesus will return and judge wickedness. And this is what Peter says, chapter 3, verses 5 through to 7. For this they willingly are ignorant of. That by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly man. Okay, just as God judged the world with water, there's a time coming when he will judge the world with fire. So with this scriptural connection established, it identifies that we need to pay attention to this first universal judgment because there's more universal judgment to come. Understand that God has judged the world once and he will do it again. So what's there to learn from this first universal judgment. I'm going to take it for granted that you have some familiarity with this account of Noah and the flood. So I'm not going to look at all the details, but I want to consider five things about God's judgment, okay, which will confirm to us the big idea of the sermon, which is this. God will judge universally, but in grace, he has provided a universal solution. Okay, God will judge universally, but in his grace, he has provided a universal solution. So the first thing that we learn here is that God judges sin and the penalty is death. Now, why did God unleash this flood? Why did he go on this destructive decreation Campaign. Well, what would provoke such drastic action? Well, this question is answered in the previous chapter. And what's interesting is that the language used in chapter 7, 
It's like a blinking arrow pointing us back to chapter 6. Moses wants us to recall the rationale behind the flood. Because that this flood, it's not just some freak natural disaster. Okay, in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 7, the word increased is used to describe the flood waters. This same word is used to describe man's pervasive wickedness in chapter 6, verse 5. The word prevailed in verses 19 and 20. It's found in a different form in chapter 6 and verse 4. And destroyed, okay, verse 23, repeats the condemnation pronounced in chapter 6 and verse 7. The inclusive language of all, every, and everything imitates the universality and the pervasiveness of man's wickedness in chapter 6 and verse 5. And then there's this repetition of the extent of the flood, that it will destroy man, beasts, creeping things, fowls of the air. So, so there are these deliberate links connecting chapter 6 and 7. So as the flood is unleashed, re resulting in universal devastation, Moses doesn't want us to lose sight of the rationale behind it. Okay, that the Lord unleashed this universal flood. Why? Well, it's because of the pervasive and prominent wickedness of man. That there was a deadly tumor that had developed. Humanity was riddled with the cancer of sin. And the Lord needed to perform drastic surgery. And this account that we know so well, that we've been taught since we're little children, it, it shouts through the heavenly megaphone that God hates sin and God will deal with sin. Okay, understand that God cannot ignore sin. God's character demands that wickedness be confronted and chastened. And this horrifying universal flood it should remove from us the foolish notion that God is unconcerned or blasé about the sin of mankind. Please understand that God's offended at sin because sin is against him. And just like God judged the world once, he will judge again because sin must be dealt with. This is what God's holiness, his righteousness, and his justice demands. And notice in the text that death is the payment due for sin. Okay, verse 22 says, All in whose nostrils was the breath of life, of all that was in the dry land, died. This may be stating the obvious, but I want you to notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say everyone drowned. Okay, the text doesn't say that. It very purposefully uses this word died. And that confirms that this is not to be viewed as some freak natural disaster, but divine judgment. Judgment that's executing the penalty of sin. Sin is a capital offense. And this is something that is taught explicitly in the New Testament. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. Okay, when you go to work, you get your due wages. 
Again, with sin, the wage due is death. Okay, that speaks of physical death. This is why death and decay are our inescapable enemies. But it also speaks of spiritual death. Eternal separation from God. Sin excludes us from heaven. It excludes us from entering God's presence and it sends us to hell where eternal judgment will be unleashed. And we can be assured that God will deal with sin because God is not like man. Okay, often mankind, we, we ignore sin. Okay, we, we try and cover it up, pretend it never happened, or hey, it's not that bad. That won't happen with God. Every sin account will be settled. There will be no outstanding balances with the laws. And this universal flood is a graphic proof that God is serious about dealing with sin. This is an inescapable reality. And as we think about this, okay, God dealt with sin with a universal flood. And when Jesus returns, this world will be purged with fire and mankind will be punished for their sin in hell for all eternity. Okay, th th those three things together, that ought to impress on us. It ought to stamp in our minds and our hearts the seriousness of sin. It's not something that we should be trivial or flippant about. And yet, if we're perfectly honest with ourselves, how often we're, we're far too casual and we're far too unconcerned about sin. You know, we don't have a holy intolerance for it. Okay? As Christians, how often we, we aren't that phased. By both the presence and practice of sin in our own lives. How often we think, well, hey, it's, it's not that big of a deal. No, nobody's perfect. And we're masters at explaining it away, rationalizing it. But understand that's inconsistent with God's character. And sure, sin won't be completely eradicated in this life. We will struggle with it. And yet we ought not to be content with it. Nor should we be unmoved by our practice of it. Understand that in God's sight, sin is an abomination. It's a despicable sight. It's a putrid smell. It's completely intolerable. And I'd like to suggest that as Christians, often we are far too nonchalant about sin. Okay, when was the last time that you were devastated by your personal sin? And I'm not talking about being upset about the consequences, okay, nor the fact that you were caught. But what I mean, you were devastated, you were distraught by the fact that you did it. That, that this reveals what I'm really like. How much holy hatred for sin really resides within you? You know, a dose of holy hatred for sin is a medicine that we would all do well to take. The second thing that we learn from this account is that God's judgment is universal. You know, a hotly debated topic is whether the flood of Noah was a local flood or a universal flood. You know, last week on the outline sheet, there were 26 reasons provided by Dr. Henry Morris as to why this was a universal flood. 
Trust you've had the chance to work through it. It's very compelling. Creation scientists have made a very strong case for the view of a universal flood. But what I want to consider is not the scientific side, okay, not the evidence from geology and fossil records, although that's helpful. Okay, I, I'm not a scientist. So what I want us to see is what the Bible says. And, and this is why. Okay, if we believe the Bible is the word of God, then what it says settles the matter. Okay, if the Bible says it was a universal flood, guess what? It was a universal flood. So here are six biblical arguments for a universal flood. And as we see from Dr. Morris, there are lots more, but here are six. Number one, the use of the word all. Okay, the Hebrew word all, it occurs twice in chapter 19, and that is very important. Because if it was used once, perhaps it could be explained away. Okay, the word all can be used in a way that doesn't mean universal. And that's a point made by those who hold to the local flood view. Okay, they will list other examples in the Bible where the word all is used in a phenomenal sense. But the fact that it's repeated, okay, what it does is it actually forms a language device known as a Hebrew superlative. And it makes anything but a universal flood untenable. And the repetition of all and every throughout this account is very strong evidence for a worldwide flood. The second argument is that the mountains were covered. Okay, in verse 19 of chapter 7, very careful and deliberate language is used. Okay, remember the Bible is inspired by God. The words used aren't there by accident. Okay, it's very deliberate. It says, the waters prevailed upon the earth. That seems to be very widespread. All the high hills, and just in case, we, we might think, well, hey, it's just the high hills in one area, which as an aside, that doesn't make sense, because if water covered the highest mountains in one area, it would spread, because water equalizes. Okay, that's how it works. But the text adds another important phrase. It says, that were under the whole heavens were covered. Okay, so in other words, every mountain under the sky was covered. And not just covered, they were covered by 15 cubits, which would be enough to ensure that no one could seek safety at the top of the highest hill. And the fact that there was this much depth of water and water equalizes is clear evidence for the universal flood. The third argument is the duration of the flood. As you may have noticed, this account is full of dates. And if we look at them, Noah was in the ark for around about one year. Local floods don't last that long. Often a flood is over in a couple of days. So to last a whole year says something about the extent of the flood. The fourth argument is the construction of the ark. Okay, it was pointless to build this vessel and to load up with all of this food and all of these animals if it was merely a local flood. Why not migrate to an area that wasn't flooded? Okay, the construction process took around 100 years, that's plenty of time, to migrate to a flood-free location. Number five is the promise of God. 
Okay, if this is a local flood, the promise of God to not flood the world again, which we see in the coming chapters, that has been broken time and time again. There have been and will continue to be devastating local floods. Our country experiences plenty. So their very presence would call into question the legitimacy of God's promise if we're going to hold to a local flood interpretation. And then the sixth argument is a theological one, the theology of judgment. Okay, the Bible is very clear that judgment is avoidable by nobody. It's appointed unto man once to die after that, the judgment. And since this is used as an illustration of the judgment to come, it would be consistent to view this flood as universal. And since this flood is universal, it reveals how God judges. Okay, God judged this way once. Okay, he judged universally, and this is how he will judge again. All sin must be judged. And all mankind, that includes you and that includes me, we, we are sinners and we have sinned which demands universal judgments. Now this claim that all are sinners, that, that's not popular. That's not palatable. It's a bit like trying to get some of my kids to eat vegetables. It's highly offensive. But please understand, this is the diagnosis of the Bible, okay? That this is not some message that I have written. This is what the Bible says. This is what God says about us. And if you're feeling a little bit offended by this claim, okay, that everyone is a sinner, I want you to be honest with yourself for a moment. Because if we think this through, that the symptoms of sin are quite obvious in our lives. Can you honestly say that you've never told a lie? Not once have you ever lied? Not once have you had a lustful thought? Okay, for the men, you've seen the lady walk down the street. Not once have you ever had that second look. You've never used the Lord's name in vain once in your life. Okay, if I was to ask your parents if they're still alive, they would tell me you never disobeyed them once. And I could go on. Okay, if we were to paint an honest self-portrait of every time that we have sinned, it would be quite a disgusting and deplorable image. And we don't even realize all the time that we sin. Sin is the universal disease that plagues us all. And it places us under the judgment of God. And just like God judged sin with this worldwide flood, you can be assured that he will judge your sin. This is what the Bible tells us. It's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgments. My friend, don't bury your head in the sand. Don't pretend this isn't real because the stakes are far too high. You are a sinner and God will judge. There's nothing more certain. So with that in mind, it leads into the third thing that we learn. God provides a way to be saved from judgment. Now, God's judgment is sure. That's illustrated vividly in the flood. But in the midst of this harrowing wrath that rains down, God's grace 
shines through the darkness. This is evident in verse 23. It commences with, with a very devastating description. Death, decay, destruction, layer upon layer, that the violent churning and whirling waters, it, it unleashes this decreation devastation. That This is a horrific scene. Body after body swept away under the raging torrents. Supposed safe high ground repeatedly covered. Animals panicking, trees ripped out of the ground. Fear and, trep- and trepidation grips everyone. And, and they begin to realize that this crazy guy Noah was actually right. Okay, this is a harrowing and horrific scene that's really fitted for a horror movie. But in the midst of the darkness, death and destruction, God's glorious grace bursts onto the scene. Verse 23 concludes, And Noah only remained alive and they that were with him in the ark. God provided a means of salvation. There was a way to be spared from the universal judgment, and that was inside the ark. God, in his mercy and grace, provided a way to be saved. I want you to notice a few things about this vessel of salvation. We see that it's God's idea. It was his initiative. This was not Noah's idea, but God's provision. We see also that this was the exclusive way to be saved. There was only one way to be spared from the watery grave. One way to be saved from the righteous wrath of God. It wasn't possible to go to some high place or to use your own boat or to hide in some watertight structure. You weren't able to flee to another land. There was just one way. And that was the way that God prescribed. And we see also, and this is very sad, that so many rejected God's provision of salvation. You know, we don't know how many people were on the earth at this time. It's around about 1,500 years from creation. No doubt there had been quite the population boom. And yet only eight entered the ark the rest rejected god's provision and it's not like they didn't know noah preached for around about 100 years that that they witnessed this massive vessel being constructed that wasn't normal And, and yet no one outside of noah's family got into the ark i wonder why i wonder why they never got in I think it's fair to assume they were probably skeptical, that they didn't believe that God would judge with a flood. Noah, you're just delusional. You're using scare tactics with all of this judgment talk. Maybe others thought they could develop their own way to save themselves just in case this happened. We can't be sure. But what is certain and absolutely devastating is that the vast majority rejected God's prescribed means of salvation that's the sad reality of the text and with this illustration at the forefront of our minds god in his amazing grace 
has provided a way for us to be saved from the judgment that's still to come. He has developed a glorious plan that enables sin to be dealt with, not by us. And like the ark, this was developed by God. It was his initiative. He developed the plan in eternity past. And like the ark, it's exclusive. This is the only way. And just like the ark, you have to make a choice to enter. What is this plan? Well, God's glorious and gracious provision involved the sending of his son. Jesus Christ came to this earth. God took upon himself human flesh. He lived the perfect life that we never could. And God's plan was for Jesus Christ to go to the cross. And there at the cross, he took the sin of humanity upon himself. Understand, Jesus knew no sin. He he never sinned, but he took our sin. And with our sin on his account, God the Father unleashed his holy wrath on his Son. Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The Father's judgment was poured out just like the flood, and there Jesus died. He shed his blood. He was punished for our sin. He took the judgment of God so that we would not have to. This is God's gracious provision. But understand, just like the ark, okay, with the ark, one had to enter it. There was a choice to make. And that's the same with Jesus. Okay, Jesus died for all. His death is sufficient to save all, but you must accept the provision. You must appropriate it. You must receive it. How do you do that? Well, you acknowledge that you're a sinner and you turn from it. The theological term is repentance. The next theological word is faith. What that means is believing that Jesus is God. And that he died for your sin, rising again on the third day, and that this alone is able to save you. My friend, that is how you become in Christ. And just like being in the ark, this is the only way to be safe and secure from the judgment that's coming. So my question for you is this. Are you in Christ? Have you accepted God's provision of salvation. Okay, that there is no question that is more important than this. Are you in Christ? The fourth thing we learn is that God protected and preserved Noah and his family. Have you ever thought about what it must have been like for Noah and his family on the ark? At times, it must have been quite scary. You know, as, as the rain poured down 40 days and 40 nights nonstop, that's hard to fathom. And then try and picture as the ark is picked up by the waters and it's tossed to and fro in the violent waters. Uh, hopefully no one got seasick. That would be horrible. Yeah, and there must have been some very scary moments. 
And then think about this. What about the plight of all of those who refused to enter the ark? There were names, there were faces that Noah and his family knew. They refused to get into the ark. That must have been quite the burden. Perhaps there were people knocking and screaming, trying to get in after it was too late. And then on the ark itself, filled with all of these animals, must have been noisy, stinky. Understand the ark is not like our modern cruises. There's no cinemas and gyms and pools and water slides and live shows and every cuisine imaginable. And they weren't on the ark for just a few weeks. It was around about a whole year. Man, that's a long time to be on a boat. And to further compound all of this, there seems to be no indication in the text that God spoke to them during this time. There seems to be divine silence. So try and put yourself in, in Noah's situation. The ark must have been quite a challenging time. But here's the thing, the Lord ensured that Noah and his family were preserved. I want to draw your attention to verse 1 of chapter 8. This has a wonderful phrase that says, And God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah. Now that doesn't mean that God forgot about him. God's not like you and I. So it's not like, oh no, I forgot to pick up my kid from school. Or, sorry dear, I forgot to get milk and bread on my way home, even though you asked me six times. Or, I just realized I left my spouse at the train station. Okay, it's not like that. Even if Noah and his family felt like that at times. But rather, what this phrase communicates is an acting towards someone because of a previous commitment. Okay, and acting towards someone because of a previous commitment. So God acts. He has completed the decreation and now the recreation commences. And the text seems to identify three ways that God remembered Noah. The first way is that he began to remove the water. Okay, verses 1 to 3, it says, God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters assuaged. The fountains also of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped and the rain from heaven was restrained and the waters returned from off the earth continually. And after the end of the hundred and fifty days, the waters were abated. So the waters began to recede at the Lord's command. The chaos is brought back under control. The second way God remembered Noah was by giving him a sign or a symbol through the sending out and returning of the dove. Okay, Noah wanted to see if the ground was dry enough to disembark, so he sent out birds to test the environment. A raven was dispatched. It just kept flying around, didn't return. Okay, ravens are scavengers, so he's likely feasting on all the carcasses. Next, Noah sent out a dove. The first time it flew around and returns, but the next time it returned with a freshly plucked olive leaf. And this was a sign that the judgment was over. The water had receded and new life was now evident. And it's interesting that a dove carrying an olive branch is still considered today as a symbol of peace. And the third way God remembered Noah was by words 
I mentioned previously that God has seemed to be silent. Okay, that there seems to be a divine silence since the instruction to enter the ark. But finally, in verse 15, the silence is broken. And what wonderful words for Noah. And God spake. He knew for sure that God remembered him. And the point that I want us to consider is that God preserved and protected Noah and his family as the fierce judgment was unleashed. Okay, think about it. There was plenty that could have gone wrong with the ark in this flood, and yet it didn't. The Lord kept them safe through this whole ordeal. And the application that I want to draw out is this. Now, it isn't a direct parallel because Christians don't go through the judgments, But this flood account illustrates that we can trust God to preserve us. We can trust God to keep us saved because we are in a vessel that's far more secure than an ark. And that is Jesus Christ. And my friend, once you are in him, you are eternally safe and secure. Nothing can pluck you out. You can have that confidence. Nothing in this world is more safe and secure than our salvation. Because God has promised that he will complete the work. Paul in the book of Romans teaches that if justification has happened, then glorification is guaranteed. That's the promise. God won't have any half-finished projects. And our security which is different to assurance. Okay, let me make this distinction. Eternal security is a settled reality depending on God's character and promises. Okay, so that's eternal security, whereas assurance of salvation is more subjective. It can increase and decrease depending on a lot of factors. But understand this. In Christ, you are secure. You're secure. You are safe. That there is nothing in this world that can separate you from the love of God. Romans chapter 8 has a long list. None of those things can separate you from the love of God. You're safe. You're secure. Your sins are forgiven. Your home in heaven is secured. And you will be with Jesus Christ forever. My friend, this is all guaranteed. If you are in Christ, nothing can take that away. Just as God graciously preserved Noah and his family in the ark, he's committed to preserving all those in Christ. And the fifth and final thing that we learn is that God's salvation works. You know, as we saw last week, Noah had great faith in the Lord. He believed that the flood would come. He went about constructing this massive ark. He entered the ark, believing this would keep him and his family safe. And it's a wonderful illustration of faith, total confidence in God's word. He was all in on God. And here's the thing. 
It happened just as God said. God said it would flood. What happened? It did. He said the world would be destroyed, and it was. He said the ark was the way to be kept safe, and it was. God's way of salvation worked. Okay, verses 18 and 19 of chapter 8 says this, And Noah went forth, and his sons, and his wife, and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every fowl, and whatsoever creepeth upon the earth, after their kinds, went forth out of the ark. They exited the ark. They were alive. They were protected from the great decreation. And now Noah begins to function like an Adam 2.0. Okay, he enters the recreation. He had faith in God's method of salvation. And that method worked. It saved him. It delivered him from the wrath of God. And what this illustrates is that God's means of salvation works. And that's very important. Okay, like Noah, we are called to have faith. We are called to believe that judgment is coming. That God will deal with sin. We are called to totally depend on Jesus Christ. To be all in on him. That calls for faith. And just like the ark worked, Jesus will work. That there's no chance that God's plan of saving mankind will fail. You know, have those dark and depressive thoughts ever entered your mind? What, what if God's plan of salvation doesn't work? These are satanic lies endeavoring to undermine your faith. But my friend, we learn from this account of the ark that God's vessel of salvation worked. It was successful. And Jesus, the ultimate vessel of salvation, will work. How can I be so sure? Jesus rose from the dead. His resurrection assures that that's the divine stamp of approval. God's plan will work we can be confident of that we can base our whole life on that fact god's plan of salvation will work that my friend is our great hope so that brings to an end our study of this part of noah and the universal flood and we learn from what the bible says about this flood that God has judged the world once, and he will do it again. God will judge universally, but in his grace he has provided a universal solution. Have you embraced the solution? Have you taken hold of Jesus Christ by faith? That's the only way. And if you haven't, and if you don't, okay, God will judge you. God will judge you eternally in a horrible place called hell. But if you have embraced Jesus, he has taken every last 
drop of judgment that you deserve. There is nothing at all left to pay and you are safe and secure in him. And it will work. There's no reason to doubt it. If the ark worked, Jesus will certainly work. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you and praise you for your word. And our Lord, we we see uh, that this uh, universal flood that really happened has an awful lot to teach us about yourself. And it illustrates wonderfully uh, the glorious gospel message. Lord, I pray that if there's one here this morning that doesn't know Christ, that they would come to know him today. And our Lord, I do pray uh, for those of us uh, who are in Christ, uh, would be thrilled uh, by who he is. And that by your grace, I would implement uh, that which we need to uh, apply to our lives today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.